Our Old Testament lesson comes from Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31. Hear now the word of our God. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This is the word of the Lord. I'm tempted to ask for a show of hands of women who are frustrated at the Proverbs 31 woman because she seems so perfect, so unattainable, such an impossible ideal. Actually, we, we had a, a discussion in our session meeting yesterday about Gregory the Great's description of the elder. <laughs> you see, part of, part of our... I would, I'd be tempted to say our culture, but honestly, it's probably just our humanity. We, we look at ideals and we find them impossible. But you see, part of what God is doing is remind, we've already heard, it's why every service at Messianic Covenant will start with that prayer of confession, <laughs> declaration of pardon. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the standard of truth, of justice, of beauty, the standard that God has given us is precisely that. It's, it's what it, it's, 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 it's not, God never says, oh, it's no big deal. You can, if, if you don't, if, if you don't attain to my standard, eh, no big, no biggie. God doesn't say that. 
God, God actually says the wages of sin is death. It's why we need Jesus. And there's a very real way in which the Proverbs 31 woman reminds us how much we need Jesus. Uh, partly because in Proverbs 1 through 9, the father introduces his son to Lady Wisdom and tells his son to, to marry Wisdom, to get Wisdom, to spend his life with Wisdom. And then here at the end of the book of Proverbs, we see Lady Wisdom portrayed now as the, yes, the ideal woman. This is what Lady Wisdom looks like in her earthly garb, you might say. Proverbs 31 shows us a woman who fears the Lord. She is strong, confident, wise, caring. Now, it's worth noting that in 1 Timothy 5, when Paul describes the things that should characterize a widow before she becomes a widow, because Paul's describing the widow in 1 Timothy 5, but then he's describing her by all the things that she did before she became a widow, he describes her as, so actually, really, Paul's, really just telling young ladies now, while you're, before you're a widow, think about who you should be. This is what Paul says, that she should have a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. This is, this is the same ideal as Proverbs 31, but it's partly that this the ideal is set forth not in order to make you feel, oh, I, f- I fail so much. That, that shouldn't be the way you respond to this. It should be rather to say that, actually, and, and part of the also for you husbands, sort of your task is to make it easy for your wife to become this sort of woman. Because so often, so often, sort of husbands can get sort of micromanaging oriented and sort of like, I, no, your, your calling is to glorify your wife and to, so that's where sort of, and, and that's what you see the husband, if you watch the, what the husband does in Proverbs 31, sometimes I've, I've, I've heard pastors say, you know, when it says, you know, she considers a field and buys it, I've heard pastors say, well, she consulted with her husband first, of course. Really? The heart of her husband trusts in her. He trusts in her. So therefore, she, she, she knows. He trusts me. I'm going to buy this field because my husband knows that I know what I'm doing. She's a confident woman who goes out and buys a field knowing that she knows what she's doing. And that's what, now, and as we, we talk about this with young couples when they're in their premarital counseling, and one of the things we always tell them is, this takes time. Obviously, this couple's been around for a while. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not that, you know, your first day you're married, you trust each other. I mean, you kind of do, hopefully. But it takes time to build this. And that's why it requires both the husband to demonstrate this in the way that he cares for her, but also for the wife to realize, this. yes, this is what I'm called to be. I'm called to be strong. Now, part of the other thing that happens here when we see this as unattainable is uh, she has servants. Notice, she has servants. This is describing not 
a housewife in a nuclear family in the 21st century. This is describing the, the, the lady of the house in an ancient culture in which she probably has anywhere from five or ten or more servants. So when it talks about all the things she's doing, there's a whole lot of people putting into effect the things that she's doing. So, uh, and I know some of you kids are thinking, well, that's why you know, there's so many kids so they'd have people, that, they'd have the servants to do all the work. Uh, <laughs> That's not the servants that were, were around in that day. So, so when you feel like it's unattainable, don't worry. That's describing a different culture. And sort of we translate that into sort of, sort of this is just, we have, we have smaller circles of influence and that's okay. We're not expect, expected to be more than we are. But um, so yeah, truly, as the the husband says in Proverbs 31, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Our New Testament lesson comes from Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, hear now the word of our God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is the word of the Lord. Early on in my ministry, Colossians was the first book I preached on, and I actually preached a sermon on marriage pretty regularly back in those days. But I, I, when I would preach the sermon, which you heard something like it last week, I would invariably get comments afterwards saying, but what does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband? You spent a lot of time with the husbands. You didn't talk much about the wives. And so last week when I got several questions along the same line, I was like, okay, fine. I need to actually do that. But for the most part, today's sermon is going to be the same as last week, because what Paul's doing in Colossians 3 is uh, the same thing, whether you're a husband or a wife, a parent or a child, a slave or a master. 
there'll be some distinctive parts here and there because there is a distinction between husband and wife. But the heart of Christian ethics is the same in every relationship. What is the heart? Verses 1 through 4. Since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Paul's letter to the Colossians can be summed up in four questions. Who is Jesus Christ? What has he done? Who are you in Christ? And what does that mean for your life? We've been looking in the last few couple of weeks at the, the five imperatives in verses 12 to 17, which these five imperatives are the same imperatives for every relationship that we'll be talking about. Put on, verse 12, the qualities of Christ, verses 12 to 14. Let the peace of Christ, verse 15, rule in your hearts. Verse 15, be, uh, be thankful, which is then expounded in the last two imperatives. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, verse 16, and do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, verse 17. So what Paul is doing here at the end of chapter 3 is applying these five imperatives to our everyday relationships as husbands and wives, as parents and children, as masters and slaves. The commands, the imperatives of the Christian life are rooted in the indicative, the, the statement of who you are in Christ. We are to become more and more of who we already are in Christ. I've been suggesting that Paul thinks of, of, the, of the human person in terms of three concentric circles. There's the inner man, what, we, what he sometimes calls the heart or the mind or the, the inner self. But the inner man is this, this sort of the core of who you are. And there's, there's the second circle, the, the flesh, our, our drives and desires and habits. And the, the, the third circle is the, the outer surface of our lives, our, our thoughts, words, and deeds, the, where we sort of in, encounter others. When, when Paul says in verse 3 that you have died, he's referring to the inner man. The core of who you are, is, that's where I, I draw a picture of the cross and connect that, okay, that who you were in Adam, you were dead. Your inner man was dead in sin. But in Christ, your old man has died, and you have been made alive in Christ. So now, Christ, who is your life, Paul says, or in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, that was the old man, but Christ who lives in me, so that, Paul now will say, you, have, you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So this is what has, you are no longer who you once were. You have... As Paul says in, in verse 9, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed. So notice now he's talking about the ongoing side. This is where now he's talking about that second circle, that the flesh, the, 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 that we are being renewed because we have been made new. That language of old and new self is Paul's inner man language, but the being renewed is connected with Paul's command to put to death what is earthly in you from verse 5. Yes, the old man is dead, but as long as we are in this body, we are still putting to death daily the deeds of the flesh, those things in us that are hostile to Christ, those things in us that belong to the old man. Oh, he's dead. But his stuff is still cluttering up the place. His, 
his wardrobe is still stinking up the house. And so we need to put off those old ways of doing things and put on a new way of doing things. Those new patterns, those new ways of knowing and doing because we have been made alive with Christ. So what does this mean for wives? Well, your life is now, even now, hidden with Christ in God. You are no longer who you once were. You are no longer the old, selfish, arrogant, lying, greedy, angry, lustful, inconsiderate, impatient, unkind sinner that you used to be. She died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, Paul says in verse 5, put to death whatever belonged to that old self. And in verse 8, rid yourself of all such things as these. That's not you anymore, so don't live like it is. Every time you sin, you are denying who you are. Every time you let sin master you, you are denying the master who bought you. If you are in Christ, then you have put on the new self. So when Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, uh, that word translated fitting has to do with that which is proper, that which is due. It's, It's your duty in the Lord. I know, when you start combining submission with duty, that makes some folks really nervous. We live in a day where nobody tells me what to do. So let me, let me say right up front that if a husband abuses his authority, he should be rebuked by the elders. If his abuse rises to the level of serious harm, he should be arrested by the magistrate. So it's, this is not an unaccountable husband who can, sort of can do whatever he wants. No. Husbands are accountable for their actions. Now, you might ask, well, what about if the, if the wife is abusing her husband? Now, that has become a real issue. In, in, in some cultures, it's not an issue. Why? Because in, in, in some cultures, a wife has no authority. And without authority, it's impossible to abuse authority. On the other hand, in some cultures, it's gone way out of whack. So I've got, I've got friends in Russia and Eastern Europe who live in cultures where marriage equality has reached the point where wives abuse their husbands at least as often, if not more often, than husbands abusing their wives. It's it's really interesting to see see what happens when you when you get to a point of complete sort of marriage equality. I mean, I've had friends tell tell me stories of just it's I mean it gets brutal. So let's just the point is that one in a position of weakness cannot oppress. They can still sin, don't get me wrong. They can sin very regularly. But only one in a position of authority can oppress. It's why, you know, because Paul is, has just told the wife to submit to her husband, so Paul admonish, admonishes husbands, do not be harsh with them. Sometimes people ask me questions about, well, how, how far do you go in submitting? Can my, can my husband tell me what to wear? You know, can he micromanage my daily routine? I mean, can he? I mean, I suppose technically he could, but that would be the very harshness that Paul forbids. So that's where, you know, that's where when, when you might think, is Paul leaving this open-ended? Does he, does he, not, does he not put any limits on this? Think back to the rest of chapter 3. If Paul is applying the rest of chapter 3 to marriage in this, then we should see what he's doing earlier, say in verses 12 to 14, 
What was the first imperative of the Christian life that we saw in chapter 12? Put, or verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So what do you do, O wife, when your husband is acting unreasonably? Well, you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. So put on a compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And, okay, your husband is not loving you the way he's supposed to. So start by bearing with him. I, I remember a time when my wife humbled herself in this way. I was... I was kind of used to her sort of getting a little angry or breaking down in tears. And when she actually just bore with my weakness, it nearly broke my heart. I had been harsh and she didn't respond with tears. She just humbled herself to follow Jesus. She set herself to do what Christ called her to do. I was devastated. If she had responded by getting upset, I would have felt justified. You know how this works. When anger begets anger, you get, ah, you're as bad as me, you see. Ha. But instead, she followed Christ when I refused to. And that brought me to repentance faster than I had ever repented. So that's, that's how it should work. But what if it doesn't? Your, your submission is to win your husband, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, when he suggests that a wife's submission could even be the instrument of converting an unbelieving husband. I... I had a chance to baptize a husband like that, where his wife's, his wife's submission, her quiet sort of just following Jesus, led him to repent of his sin and believe in Jesus. And I got a chance to baptize him, and that was fun. But what do you do when it doesn't work? That's where Paul's discussion of complaints and forgiveness comes in. Paul assumes that if you have a problem with someone, then you'll, you'll start by going to them and saying so. That's called bringing a complaint. If your husband has treated you harshly, if he's micromanaging, if he's being overbearing, then you start by going to him and presenting your complaint and saying, that, that's harsh, that's not kind. If he acknowledges his fault and seeks to repair it, then forgive him. If he refuses to acknowledge his fault, if he refuses to repair it, then, well, Jesus actually gives us the, the rest of the process, which Paul assumes that you know from Jesus. That complaint then needs to be brought, you know, bring two or three witnesses. And if he still won't listen, come to the elders. Because this is where, you know, this, is, this is entirely co consistent with submitting to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Because verse 18 is simply one application of the rest of chapter 3. And chapter 3, verse 13, talks about complaints and forgiveness. So when we think about what does a complaint look like in Scripture, well, Jesus gives us a whole process for how to handle it in Matthew 18. So there, it's, it's not, you know, wives submit to your husband does not mean put up and shut up and just deal with it for the rest of your life. It includes, and if it's not working, there's recourse. There's a way to deal with it. Now, maybe, maybe you've tried all this before. Maybe you've tried it several times and it hasn't worked. Maybe you've reached a place where you're afraid for yourself, for your children. Do I have to go through all that again? No. If you're afraid for yourself or your children, the proper response is to run. 
There was a woman who had tried to work through issues in two previous churches. So when she came to us, she was running. And we didn't tell her, oh, you need to start over because we haven't been part of the process yet. No. A family from our church took her in and protected her. Her husband was not repentant. He did not seek to repair his faults at all. And when that happens, when a, when a husband doubles down on bitterness and refuses to love, then he should be excommunicated, cut off from Christ, declared to be an unbeliever. And the same is true, on the other hand, when a wife refuses to submit to a loving husband. Paul does not say that put on humility, make meekness and patience when you feel like it. He does not say to forgive if the other person deserves it. No, it's as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Submission is hard. Now, it, it may sound funny to hear me say that, because you might think, oh, you're a husband, you're a father, you're a pastor, you're a teacher, you're in a dozen positions of authority. But I'm also under a vow of submission. When I stood before the Great Lakes Presbytery, they asked me, do you promise subjection to your brethren in the Lord? Submission is hard. It means when the session makes a decision, you'll never know whether I voted against it. Because this is now our decision. I submit to my brothers, and we do this together. By the way, I'm not making reference to any particular thing right now. So if you're you're trying to think, what does Peter disagree with? No, no, no. I'm, I'm just saying that's just the case. When there's an issue before the Presbytery or the General Assembly, I'll speak openly as to what I believe is the best course of action, But once the decision is made, I do my best to submit to my brothers in the Lord and recognize this is now our decision and we are walking together forward. And just as with the wife, so also with the pastor, there's there's a proper avenue for complaint. And if it's ever to a point where that need, you know, I need to take a complaint to my presbyteria, yeah, that's what should happen. Part of the problem is that in American culture, we don't take submission seriously. And we'll look at this in a couple weeks when we get to Paul's instructions for the workplace. The refrain in American culture is, nobody tells me what to do. But the heart of submission is found in the mind of Christ. Talk about, talk about someone who, I mean, Christ submits? Yeah. Paul says in Philippians 2, Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is where... Christ, the eternal Son of God, who is one with the Father from all eternity, took on our flesh and learned obedience through what he suffered. Submission is not something unique to women. Submission is something that must characterize all Christians. If you are not a submissive person, you need Jesus. Because if if you believe in Jesus, if you have been united to Christ by faith, if Christ is your life, that's the same Christ who humbled himself and learned obedience through what he suffered. So let the peace of Christ, as Paul says, rule in your hearts. It's a submissive stance that we take, to which indeed you were called in one body. 
It's not let your husband rule your heart. Your husband does not rule you. You owe him submission, yes. But you don't owe him submission because of how great he is. You owe submission to your husband because the peace of Christ rules in your heart. You owe submission to Christ, and therefore you submit to your husband out of reverence for Christ. That's the phrase that Paul uses in Ephesians. So the husband is not called to make his wife submit. The husband is called to love his wife. If you try to make your wife submit, that's the very harshness that Paul forbids. But in the same way, wives, you're not called to make your husband love you. And in case you haven't noticed yet, nagging doesn't really work. It might convince him to get up off the couch and take out the trash, just to keep your mouth shut. But that's not love. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk never produces love. How do you get to love? Well, as the last three imperatives of verses 15 to 17 remind us, the root of submission is found in thankfulness. Be thankful. Are you characterized by gratitude? And first and foremost, gratitude to God. Be thankful that he has delivered you from the domain of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of his beloved son. If you see God for who he is, And if you see your sin for what it is, then you will marvel at the kindness and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. As long as we think that, eh, I'm okay, I will be an ungrateful person. As as long as you think, I deserve better, then you will not be thankful. But Paul says, be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How does the word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom? We need to know the word, not just about the word, but the word must dwell in us. And that's where thinking about Whose word is most powerful in our lives? What words shape us and mold us? The word of Christ needs to be that word in our lives. It's it's not just a matter of going through the motions. It's about rooting your whole life in the word of God. An awful lot of people find it really helpful to start their day in the word and prayer. So that is very, very helpful. Some people... Their job makes them be at work at 3 o'clock in the morning. And they just all they can do is drag themselves out of bed and get to work on time. Find a different time when you can center your heart and life upon God's Word. God's Word should permeate every aspect. It's not just let the Word of Christ have a few minutes of your time, but let the Word of Christ dwell in you, live in you, grow in you. And the result of Christ's word dwelling richly in us, as we saw last time, is that, that, that we should teach and admonish one another in song. I mean, yes, Paul envisions the Christian life as a Christian musical. Because he's not talking about singing in worship. He's not talking about what we do on Sunday mornings. He's talking about what we do all during our lives. He envisions Christians singing to one another throughout the week. Oh, and by the way, this used to be common. This used to be the, uh, 
people would, I mean, during the Reformation, there's all these stories of pe- people getting together because they hadn't really done much singing before. So they start singing and just singing becomes, before they were singing in the worship service, they were in, in England, they were out singing in, they'd go after church and they'd start, they'd have, they'd have these psalm sings and they'd have, people would get together and they'd learn how to sing together. This is, this was something that was part of daily life and that's what we're, what it's, what we're called to be. It's, Paul's not expecting everyone to be an amazing singer. But he's expecting that your knowledge of the scriptures will overflow in the way that you speak to one another. Uh, part of it is, in the first century, uh, singing uh, would sound a lot more like chanting. It's, so it's not, it's not that you're some sort of great operatic singer. It's just, but it's that, it's that the word of Christ would flow out of you in all that you do, in all that you say. Why are we so feeble in our Christian walk? Well, maybe... Maybe we should actually take Paul seriously. And that when he says, sing to one another, maybe we should actually do it from time to time. I mean, it is commanded by God. Uh, if the word of Christ dwells in us richly, it will overflow in us and out of us. So God doesn't care how it sounds, but he delights to hear us sing to one another. And as we do, the word of Christ will continually reshape us into his image. Because Whatever you do, in word or deed, verse 17, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything in life. It's, it's, not, just, it's not just sort of part of your life, but everything. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And in Christian marriage, the, the wife submits to her husband so completely with such compassion and kindness that it becomes a, a joy to love your wife. The, the husband loves his wife so thoroughly with such meekness and patience that her submission is a joy to her. If, if this is who you are in Christ, because you have died with him, because you have been raised to the right hand of the Father in Christ, therefore your whole life is centered in him. And so because this is who you are in Christ, take off those dirty clothes, the old sinful rags, and put on Christ. Put on his pattern of life and his way. If if somebody asked me, how does the church submit to Christ, could I point to you, ladies, and say, look at how she submits to her husband. But husbands, don't start elbowing your wives too quickly, because if if they ask me, how does Christ love the church, could I point to you and ask, say, look at how he loves his wife. This is why we started by saying, that looks like an unattainable ideal. (laughs) Yeah, we all fall short. But the fact that we fall short does not excuse our falling short. Because we have no hope of ever submitting to our husbands, loving our wives, if we do not fix our heart and minds on the grace of God found in Jesus Christ alone. This is why Jesus is calling you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Because you have died with Christ, but you have not merely died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ, and your life is now hidden with him at the right hand of the Father. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Submit to your husband and give yourself for him as Christ has given himself for you. Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we we see your standard and we marvel because we can't 
imagine how we could possibly do that. And yet, we thank you that you did not leave us in our, in our misery to struggle alone and wander aimlessly. But you sent Jesus. You sent your only begotten Son who came in our flesh and joined himself to our humanity in order that he might join us to you, in order that we might no longer be slaves to sin and death, but might be your own dear children, fellow heirs with him who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, have mercy upon us as, as, as wives submitting to their husbands, as husbands loving our wives. Help us to, to show forth the picture of Christ and his bride, that we might show forth to the watching world, to one another and to our children, to all those around us, the glory of Jesus, that all might know that he is Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen.